0: me or Phil for the details of that class uh, as soon as the service is over but we will be doing a class this afternoon that should take about an hour and a half to an hour and 45 minutes for those who want to attend the class. It doesn't uh, compel you or somehow pigeonhole you into membership but it does give you then the opportunity to join at any time once you've attended the class. Church, I want to ask you to take your Bibles and go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John. We're going to read John chapter 2, verse 23, through chapter 3, verse 21, and then we'll pray for God's illuminating work uh, on our hearts through His Word this morning. This is the word of the Lord. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. That is, he did not believe in them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, there was a a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Through him, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light Father in heaven, we appeal to you right now as the one who loves sinners. To the one who has demonstrated your love for sinners. We appeal to you because we know that you care about our souls. We know that you long for us to be in eternal communion with you. We appeal to you now, Father, to help us understand and know truth. To embrace and love truth. To run away from darkness, to run away from sin, to run away from worldliness, and to run to and cling to Calvary's cross. And so, Lord, we just want to say this, that we are prone to wonder. We are prone to rebel. We are prone to be distracted. We are prone to think about everything in this world except You. And so help us in this moment, in this hour, to zero in on You. Speak to us through your Spirit. Show us the glory of Christ. Thrill our hearts. Give us a greater vision for our lives than what we currently have, that we may live above the fray of normal humanity and help us to live in light of Christ the King. It's in His name that we pray these things. Amen. The word love is a tricky term. L-O-V-E. It is a tricky term. If you look it up in the dictionary, you will read first that it's a profoundly tender, passionate affection for another person. Not bad. The second thing that you'll read is that it's a feeling of warm, personal attachment or deep affection as for a parent or a child or a friend. The third thing that you'll read is that it's sexual passion or desire. On down the list, you'll read that it's a strong enthusiasm or a liking for anything, like her love of books or his love of tennis. As a matter of fact, the next thing you'll read that in tennis, love means a score of zero, nothing. And then in the dictionary, you will read that love is the benevolent affection of God for his creatures or the reverent affection Do from them to Him. Church, what I want to do right now, before we go any further, is I want to define love not according to dictionary.com, not according to Webster's, not according to the Oxford English Dictionary, but according to Holy Scripture. Love is the joyful and sacrificial pursuit of another's highest good for the glory of God. Love is the joyful and sacrificial pursuit of another's highest good for the glory of God. That's what real love is. That's what biblical love is. That's what God's love is. Let me tell you something. Love that does not point others to God is not worthy of the name. Love that does not validate itself in action is not worthy of the name. Love is the joyful and sacrificial pursuit of another's good for the glory of God. And God's love for us in Christ is the preeminent example of love. Let's pause a moment and let's come to a realization. We we would all do well right now to understand love in biblical terms and to rightly delineate love from lust. I see someone that I like the way that they look. I engage with them and I like the way that they they make me feel. There may be something valid to that. But that is not the biblical concept of agape love. Or I have a child And I see that child and and I look at that child and I have this this growing affection for this child and I want this child to succeed and be blessed and to do all of these wonderful things and in some way I know that I will be honored in the blessing of that child. Now that is valid. It It is natural. It is real. But let us not mistake parental love for a child, for agape love. Every parent almost has a natural affection for their child. Let us not assume that that is a joyful and sacrificial pursuit of that child's highest good for the glory of God. There is a distinction. There is a delineation. Now, the beautiful thing is when you have a natural affection for someone and you combine that with a spiritual desire to build that person up for the glory of God. That's a beautiful thing. But let us understand that not all designations of love are the same thing. We have to look to God to understand the essence of love, the definition of love, and the demonstration of it. Now, with that being said... What we understand is that God has demonstrated His love for us in sending us Jesus. And if you've been here with us, you have understood that Jesus is the Word of God, He's the Lamb of God, He's the Son of Man, He is glorious, He is holy, He is beautiful, He is better. And in the last two weeks, what we have seen is that He is the discerner. He's the discerner. He knows what is in man. And what we studied a couple of weeks ago is that what is in man is a deceitful heart, a selfish spirit, a kingdom of me mindset. We have a a bent toward us that wants to get glory for ourselves and not for God. That's what is inside of us in our natural bent. And Jesus knows it. He knows that about us. We can't fool him. We can't hide from him. We can't run away from him far enough that he does not see what's inside of us because he's the discerner. And on top of the fact that he's the discerner, last week we saw that he's the teacher. He is the teacher because he teaches Nicodemus, this ruler of the Jews, he teaches him the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of substitution, the doctrine of salvation. And, and Jesus says, listen, you, you, you don't know these things. You don't know these things, Nicodemus. This is the deal. The wind blows where it wishes. And the Spirit is the same way. And the Spirit has to regenerate you, has to cause you to be born again for you to know God and worship God and love God. And regeneration flows into this belief, this trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So Jesus teaches these difficult doctrines to Nicodemus. And we got uh, the education last week as well, and that leads us right into man's responsibility of the revelation of the love of God. And so, church, what we're going to see are really three kinds of love this morning in verses 16 to 21. Three kinds of love that we need to understand, that we need to embrace in our minds, and we need to be transformed by. The first kind of love is God's love. We see it in verses 16 through 18. We see God's love the first thing that we see under God's love is the richness of His love in verse 16. And in verse 16, y'all, I don't have to say a lot about it it's by way of commentary, in the sense that this is the most famous verse in the, in the Bible. This is like the, it's the most famous because really there's a sense in which it's the Mount Everest of Holy Scripture. It stands above all other scriptures in a lot of ways because, like Martin Luther said, this is the gospel in miniature. That's what he said. This is the gospel. Verse 16 is the gospel in miniature. And so we see the richness of his love. Let's read verse 16 again because I want us to grasp it maybe more than we've ever have. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Keep your eyes on the text. The first word is for. It's drawing on what previously has come, which, he, which Jesus has said. Jesus has said, listen, just as the Israelites looked up to the bronze serpent and were rescued from the poison of those snakes' venom, if you look up to the Son on the cross and trust in Him and believe in Him, you will have eternal life. That's That's the four. That's why four is there. It's drawing on Jesus' words. Now John says, for God so loved the world. God. It's the same God that that Phil talked about and that he prayed to, that he is holy and perfect and sinless and set apart and supreme and the holy other. There is no uh, mistake in God, there is no flaw in God, there is no stain in God. He is the perfect, infinite, One God in three persons who created the world, sustains the world, redeems sinners, and one day will set up His kingdom so that those who believe in Him will worship Him in holy array forever and ever. That is this God. For God so loved the world. Now this is a shock to the system of every Jew because in this day and time, Jews just did not believe that God loved the world. They didn't believe it. They believed that God loved Jews and that he was going to judge Gentiles. And John writes here as a commentary to Jesus' words and says, God so loved the world. And by the world, he means sinful humanity. God loves sinners. Whether they're Jew or Gentile, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're male or female, whether they're black or white, whether they're educated or non-educated, whether they're in the social elite or the social outcast, it doesn't matter what you look like, it doesn't matter what you feel like, it doesn't matter what side of the tracks you're on, God loves sinful humanity. He does, and that's what John is saying, and he's saying this is how much he loved the world. He is validating his love for the world in this way that he gave his only son. The word gave has this joyful and willing spirit attached to it. He did not give him unwillingly or involuntarily. Nobody had a gun to God's head and said, you must give your son to sinful humanity. No, he did it willingly. He did it voluntarily. He did it joyfully. He did it sacrificially. He gave his one and only son. Now a lot of the the versions say only begotten. God's only begotten son. Fine translation. Fine translation. But I want you to know something. You can get tripped up a little bit on that designation because you might think that somehow there was a time when Jesus was not and somehow God created him. No. This word, I'm going to teach you Greek here today. I'm going to teach you Greek. It is the word monogenes. Say monogenes. Monogenes. Monogenes, okay, that, that is the term that is often translated only begotten. And what it means, monogenes means only, only, and one of a kind. So it is the one of a kind son that God has. Okay, he's not created. No, he's eternal. He is the only one of a kind son that God has. And God, in eternity past, had spent Perfect fellowship and harmony and love with this Son. They enjoyed one another in love, in holy fellowship, in in creative works and sustaining power. And God the Father gave over willingly and sacrificially and joyfully His one and only unique Son to sinful humanity. That's the message that John is teaching us. And he says, that whoever believes in him. Now, the word whoever literally means whoever. It means all. All who believe in him. There are no designations that this person or these people can't come or or this group or this organization or this ethnicity cannot come. No, whoever, all who believe in Him. I want you to understand something about this in Him. This believing in Him. The the little preposition in is is a preposition that most often means into. 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 It's a very important observation because it's not anybody who believes that Jesus is who He is or simply believes the facts about Jesus. It literally means to put your trust into somebody. Think of it like this. Think of, of, of me being at an elevator and I'm standing in front of the elevator door and I watch people get into the elevator and push a button and the door closes. The elevator goes up And then when it comes back down, nobody is inside the elevator. I'm I'm seeing the elevator and what it's doing. But I'm not actually going into the elevator until I cross over the threshold and get inside the elevator and push the button and trust the elevator to take me to the floor that I want to go. Okay? Okay. When it says believe in Jesus Christ, it's not standing on the outside of Jesus and saying, oh yeah, I believe some facts about this man Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago. No, it's saying, I put my life into his life. I put my death into his death. I put my future into his future. I'm resting everything that I have and everything that I have I am inside of him. It's getting in his elevator. Whoever believes in him should not perish. There are are a lot of contemporary ways to understand John 3.16 that makes uh, makes it be universal. I mean, so many, probably millions and millions of people can recite John 3.16, but listen to me. This is how they interpret John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that everybody in the world is going to have salvation. That's how people understand it. They don't read it. They don't think about it. This is the reality. God has given His own Son so that if you believe in Him, you won't perish you won't experience eternal death you won't go into condemnation and feel the wrath of god forever and ever and ever because this is the reality condemnation is real perishing is real and it's not annihilation it's not this final destruction where you no longer cease to exist i want to tell you something church it's like, it's like a, by way of illustration there in tombstone arizona Back in the days of the Wild West, there was this man who lived named Les More. And in Tombstone, Arizona, there is a tombstone epitaph that says, Here lies Less More. No less, no more. <laughs> Still there today. Now, it's witty, yes, but it's not true. Because right now, Less More exists Every bit as much as he did 150 years ago. It's just that he's existing either in condemnation or eternal life in the kingdom. But make no mistake about it, every person who is in the sound of my voice right now will exist forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in a ceaseless existence, some to eternal life and others to eternal condemnation. And so he's saying whoever believes in Him should not perish. If you get into Christ's elevator, as it were, then you won't perish but you will have eternal life. I want you to know that eternal life is the life of God in the soul of man. That's what it is. Don't don't minimize what it is. We we want to think, well, well, we'll be saved from condemnation. Yes, you'll be saved from condemnation. Yes, you'll be saved from perishing. But you will literally have the life of God in your soul. We want to think somehow that, that eternal life is, is basically just getting man out of hell. Yes, it's getting man out of hell, and it's getting hell out of man. But it's also getting heaven into man, and man into heaven. It is full, it is complete. There is the negative of the rescue and the positive of the deliverance over into the very life of God. That's what He has come to do. Now, when I was in seminary, I had the pleasure of meeting a number of, of missionaries from all over the world. And one of the missionaries that I was most enthralled with, there were two that kind of came around to our seminary about once a year to give a chapel message that Jamie and I were both just really thought, if we're going to the mission field, we're going to go with one of these two individuals. And this man's name was John Glass. John Glass was born in France his dad was a banker and they moved to Switzerland. He was in international banking, very wealthy family. And so John graduated from his high school at 18 in France and they sent him over to the United States to get schooling here at Syracuse University. And from the very moment that John Glass got off of the plane, having zero granted, zero religious background, zero gospel background or anything, he gets off the plane and begins to live a profligate lifestyle. Drinking, drugs, immorality, and all the rest. I mean, he just lives it up and he's got all of the resources and finances to be able to do so. And so he just... He grows his hair out halfway down his back and is just living it up, but he, he feels lost. He, he feels like he doesn't know what he's doing and, and he's not sure what he wants to do. And so he says, you know what, I'm going to take a sabbatical from <laughs> profligacy or whatever. And so he flies back to Switzerland, gets a whole bunch of money and hops on a train and takes a train east. And he travels from country to country, stopping off at different points and experiencing all the delights and things of different countries. He finds his way to Israel and into Jerusalem and stumbles upon the tomb of Jesus. And he says that when he goes into the tomb of Jesus, having no gospel background, he says a chill came over him to such a degree that he had to walk out of the tomb because of what what he was feeling. He hops back on a train, continues to travel east, Iraq, Iran, etc. He falls in with a cult, a group of people, and they're out picking fruits and stuff and living kind of crazy, and he thinks this is weird. So he jumps out of a window and gets back on a train and keeps going until he goes to New Delhi, India. He's standing in the center of town in New Delhi, India, where animals are everywhere because of their belief in, what is it? reincarnation and all of these people around and this man walks up to him and he's from Holland and he says I would like to read a verse from the Bible to you the Bible is the most widely read book in all of the world it would do you well to know at least one verse in it and John Glass says I don't know what compelled me exactly to say yes I think I was just too tired to say no And so I told him he could read the one verse. And the man from Holland looked at the Bible and said, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. And that man, for five minutes, expounded on the love of God for lost humanity. And at the very end, he said, Would you like to believe in this Jesus? whom God sent to save you from your sins. Standing in the middle of New Delhi, India, John Glass, at about 20 years old, said, Yes, I do. He gave his life to Jesus Christ at that moment, He had never seen the man from Holland before. He's never even seen him since. But he gave his life to Christ and for the last 40 years, John Glass has been preaching this gospel and planting churches in Switzerland and France and wherever he can for the sake of this message right here in John 3.16 because God loves sinners like him and God loves sinners like you. And this is the reality is that there is very likely Somebody in this room today who has yet to put their full trust in Jesus Christ, who has yet to cross over the threshold and to say, I want to put my life in His life. I want to put my hope in His hope. I want to give all that I am and all that I have to Jesus Christ. I want to be saved. You have that opportunity today. When we close the service... We will pray for you. We will pray with you. We will lead you to Jesus Christ. This is the most famous verse in the Bible because it has the most powerful message that there is. God loves sinners like you and me. And if we give our life to Him, we can be saved from our sins. Now for those of you who are being nervous about the length of this message, I had to give verse 16 its full due. Now we'll continue on. Let's just finish out verses 17, 18 under God's love. We see the reason for His love. In verse 17 it says, Listen, God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. This is the reason. God, God doesn't want to see sinners go to hell. God wants to see sinners know Him and love Him and enjoy Him and worship Him forever and ever. God has great love for sinners. And then let's look at the response of God's love in verse 18. Okay, we hear this message. God loves sinners like us. He sent His Son to die on the cross for our sins. This is awesome. Verse 18, this is the response. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only Son of God. Notice the tense. He's condemned already. So Some people think, that condemnation starts when life on earth ends. The reality is, condemnation is over every person who rejects the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so today, if you're not trusting in Christ, you live a condemned life. If you're not trusting in Christ, you have the wrath of God hanging over you. Read Romans chapter 1, verses 18-32, through 32, and you will understand what I mean. The condemnation is real, and it's happening right now for those who reject Christ. And so, just as John would say, I will say, trust in Christ, run to Christ, love Christ, put your life in Christ's life that you might not know condemnation a day longer. Divine love, God's love. Now let's look at man's love. Verses, really just verse 19 and 20. We see, that, first of all, the object of man's love. He says this is the judgment that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. People loved the darkness rather than the light. You... You get this picture, this this beautiful picture of Jesus as the light of the world, and He shines the glory of God. He shines the love of God. He shines the mercy of God. He shines the grace of God. He shines the holiness of God. He shines the infinite beauty of Almighty God. And people look at that shining light who is Jesus Christ, and they run away from Him like roaches who have been exposed by a light switch. Why? Because they love their evil deeds. They love their wickedness. They love what their heart longs after. They love the feeling that they get in their immorality. They love the feeling that they get in their selfishness. They love to build their own kingdom. They love all of these things they love and they don't want to give it up. Church, please... Please bear with me with what I've written on this note. In our natural condition, we're a bunch of people who reject the Lord. You see, before grace invaded our lives and laid claim on our souls and took control of our hearts, we were ridiculous people. Let's stop for a moment and say, can you agree with that? That before grace invaded your heart, you were a ridiculous person. You see, Adam and Eve's history is our history. What they did, we did because they represented us. We disbelieved God, we rejected God, we attempted to subvert God's authority, we ran away from Him, and we taught ourselves how to live apart from God. We learn to live independently of God and to ignore Him when we make our decisions, when we marry our spouses, when we raise our children, when we choose our jobs, when we spend our money, when we cheer for our teams, when we watch our shows, when we speak our words, when we think our thoughts, and when we live our lives. We post a no trespassing, keep out private property around the boundary of our heart and say to God, don't dare cross this line. But this is the thing, church, is that in our natural condition, we still run to God when we feel we have no other option. When we've exhausted all other human needs, our own intelligence, our own money, our power, our manipulation, our medical proficiency, our finger-crossing, our voice-raising, our physical aggression our abuse, our deception, and a whole other host of means, when none of those things work, we will run to God as our fixer. We will run to Him to fix our broken marriage, heal our sick child, save our precious job, bail us out of jail, change our bad circumstances, provide money for our rent. We will run to Him as our fixer, but not our Savior. We want Him to fix our broken car, but not our broken hearts. We want him to build up our bank account but not tear down our idols. We want him to work a miracle with our cancer of the lung but do no spiritual surgery on our cancer of the soul. He's a fixer and not a savior to us. And this is our history with God. This is our track record with God. And it's not very good. It's not very glorious. We are not a very admirable people. And church, if that offends you, if that offends you, you need to stop for a moment and say, do I have too high of an opinion of myself? Because Jesus knows what is in man. And just as Kent Hughes told me one day in a little practicum, he says, I don't know what's in the heart of an evil man, but I know what's in the heart of a good man, and it is poor and pitiful and And wretched. And that's what's in you. And that's what's in me. Apart from the grace of a good and glorious God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. That if we cross the threshold and get into His elevator and we get in with Him, we will have life eternal. So... Look back down at the text. You see human love. Man's love is for himself. Man's love is for wickedness. Man's love is for darkness. Man's love is for personal kingdom building. And so look at the very first part of verse 19. This is the verdict. This is the judgment. The judgment. This is God's judgment. His condemnation of man who runs away from the light who is Jesus Christ and continues to run for self-autonomy and independence. Man's love is darkness. God's love is for sinners. Let's look finally at transforming love. It's the very last verse of our passage. You don't have to stay in this this love that is natural to you. You don't have to stay in this love that that you're inclined to just love darkness and hate light and pursue wickedness and hate holiness. You don't have to stay there. Verse 21 testifies that. He says, whoever does what's true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John the Apostle is holding out for everybody hope that you don't have to live in condemnation. You don't have to perish forever. You don't have to walk in your sins. You don't have to live an empty, stain-ridden, unholy life your whole life. You can know something different and better and greater and wonderful and beautiful if you trust in Christ. Now, this is my interpretation of verse 21 for those of you who are kind of close, closely analyzing that verse. Verse. The reason we read from 2.23 all the way through 3.21 is because I believe John is drawing upon Jesus' words about regeneration in verses 1 through 15 to capture what he means in verse 21. What I'm saying is this, is that if you're born again, if the wind blows, if the Spirit comes in and regenerates your heart, then you now have a new heart. You have a new life. You have a new ambition. You have a new object of worship. And because of that, you begin to live in ways that bear the fruit of that new heart. You begin to love people and exercise patience with people and give money to the work of God and trust Him in difficult circumstances and and, uh, find your allegiance in the things of God and the ways of God and the people of God. And all of a sudden you begin to do works of righteousness. Why? Because you are born again by the Spirit of God. You're trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And all of that work, if you look down at verse 21, is said to have been carried out in who? In God. In God. So that that the Spirit of God has come into you. The Word of God is being engrafted to you. Christ, the Son of God, is intimately knowing you and you're knowing Him such that every good thing that you do is sourced in the God above so that when you offer yourself to God on that final day and give an account of your life, it's not going to be look at all the good things that I did for you. It's going to be look at all the glorious things that you did through me by the power of your grace. God's love is for sinners. Man's love is for darkness. Transforming love is sinners who are are transformed by the grace of God and now live holy, beautiful, obedient lives that manifest and demonstrate the regenerative work of the Spirit of God. That's the message of verses 16 through 21. God loves and saves sinners through the provision of His one and only Son. I want to ask you right now, if you would, just to bow your head. I want to ask you to bow your head, if you're willing to close your eyes. I just want to ask you a few questions. The first question I want to ask you right now, for I want you to, to just answer it before God. Have you come to grips with the darkness of your sinfulness? Have you come to grips with the darkness of your sinfulness? Do you understand your sinfulness as more than having done a few bad things in your life? but that your sinfulness is at its very core rebellion against a good God. Do you recognize that about your life? I'm not asking you about your spouse or your kids or your next door neighbor. I'm asking you about you. Have you come to grips with the darkness of your sinfulness? And have you come to grips with the condemnation that you yourself have earned? You've earned hell. You've earned weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've earned to exist forever in the place where the worm never dies. You've earned a place where the mercy of God and the grace of God and the love of God are absent. Only the wrath of God and the judgment of God are present. You've earned that. Do you confess it today? Do you believe it? Have you come to grips with it? And on the very flip side, stay focused right here. Have you come to grips with the greatness of God's love for you? Do you really feel the love of God? Do you experience? His pursuit of you. Like if you come to grips with the reality that the holy God, who was in holy communion with his beloved son, sacrificially sends his son to live the life that you're supposed to live, to die the death that you deserve, to be raised up in shame, in disrepute, in blasphemy, in horror. Have you come to grips that this is the demonstration of God's infinite and beautiful and amazing and staggering love for your soul? He was unwilling for you to perish in hell. He was willing to give up His only Son that you may have the life of God in your soul so that you can have eternal life. Not five-year life, not ten-year life, not twenty-year life, but eternal life. A life that lasts forever in the kingdom of God. God loves you. Church, He loves you, He loves you, He loves you. And He's demonstrated it most profoundly on the cross. Will you be willing to receive the embrace of Almighty God today as your Father? Would you be willing for Him to come and give you a spiritual embrace that says, I love you not based on what you've done. I love you not based on your righteous deeds. I love you not based on your best efforts to honor your parents. I love you because I love you and nothing you can do can change it. Man, will you embrace God's infinite and eternal love for you right now so that when you leave today, you can leave the anxiety behind, you can leave the worry behind, you can leave the, I'm not good enough, I'm not measuring up enough behind, and you can rest in the infinite love of a glorious Father. Are you willing to get in the elevator with Christ today and trust Him? In your marriage, in your parenting, as a student, as a worker, as a brother, as a sister, as a friend? Are you willing to trust him in the hard things? Are you willing to ride with him to the top floor in the most turbulent of circumstances? I'd rather be in the elevator with Christ being ascended up to heaven than standing on the ground floor waiting for the earth to collapse and to fall into the pit of hell apart from the goodness and grace of God forever. I call you now to trust in God who has so loved you that He's given you His only Son. John the Apostle wrote his gospel so that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing they would have life in His name. That's why he wrote all that we're reading. So I just want to call you, if you are not believing, if you're not trusting in Christ, trust in Him today. Trust Him today. Listen, tomorrow is the devil's day. Today is God's day. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to cross over from death to life. And if you're trusting in Christ, and you've been trusting in Him day after day, and month after month, and year after year, and you find your hope and your peace and your life in Him, not only praise His name, but listen to me. There are people in your life who have condemnation resting on them. Wrath abiding over them. Not because they're any worse than anybody else, but because they're rejecting the one offer of salvation that God has given in His Son Jesus Christ. Pray for that person. Love that person. Exercise hospitality for that person. Share the gospel with that person. That they may come to life everlasting in the kingdom of God. Otherwise, they will know condemnation forever. Let us pray and trust in them. If you want to come to Christ, Ron Marino, Ron, where are you? Are you up to being over for the elder for prayer today? Ron had surgery a couple weeks ago, but... If you want to pray with Ron, if, you just, if you've got a loved one that you're concerned about and you'd like Ron to pray for them, or if you need to come to Christ yourself to lift the burden of condemnation, experience the joy of eternal life, go and pray with Ron. If you're a visitor, we invite you to the meal. We're about to, in 15 minutes, have a meal. You'll be first in line. If you want to go to the membership class, see Phil or myself as soon as we're dismissed. Phil, you have anything else? All right, so Jesus said... After he had died on the cross and, and uh, been raised from the dead, he says, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Why? Because you got eternal life. You're dismissed.